Welcome to the Suicide Prevention and Awareness Month special podcast series, part of CBP's Shine a Light Suicide Prevention Program. Today, we are speaking with Commissioner Troy Miller and Dr. Kent Corso, CBP's Suicide Prevention Program Manager. A few years ago, Commissioner Miller lost his father to suicide. Dr. Corso and Commissioner Miller thought it would be a good idea to share his experience with you about how he overcame this tragedy. Thanks so much for joining us today and to our guests for doing this podcast. This is the fourth podcast in a series for Suicide Prevention Month, which is the month of September. Just a few caveats before we get going. I am a clinical psychologist, so I am a doctor, but I'm not the doctor for our guest. Uh, this isn't therapy or a counseling session, nor is anything we talk about today going to involve or constitute medical advice. This is just a conversation. Another disclaimer, is that suicide is a difficult topic to talk about. And it's not one that we can be vague or indirect about if we hope to make a difference in suicide prevention and awareness. So for the listeners out there, we are going to have a frank conversation today. If by any chance you are triggered and you have lived experience, if anything we discuss is upsetting or distressing to you, please reach out for help. Reach out to those who care for you, who love you, and reach out to those who you love. If you are a CBP employee or family member and you need help, you can always contact a peer support member, chaplain, or veteran field coordinator, or you can reach out to our employee assistance program. You can always call 1-800-273-273. 8255, which is the National Suicide Lifeline. And that is for anyone who's a CBP employee, a family member, or members of the public. Hi, Commissioner Miller. Thanks for joining us today. Good afternoon, Ken. Appreciate your willingness to talk about this sensitive issue as our fourth podcast for September, Suicide Prevention and Awareness Month. In our first podcast, we heard from Terry, who's a U.S. Border Patrol agent, who lost his son to suicide in June of this year. You've got a bit of a different story, and I'm grateful that you've been so vocal about it. And your father died by suicide. So thought we could spend a few minutes talking with you about what your experience was like with that, and then how we can frame that experience in a way that motivates our leaders to be part of the solution or gives them some ideas on how they might lean forward on this issue. How does that sound? Sounds good. Okay. Well, sir, just tell us a little bit about uh, the timeline. So when did this happen and and uh, what was going on? How did he kill himself? Things like that. Just some details to, to give us some context to the story. Uh, so this would be, um, I mean, I kind of go right before my uh, father committed suicide. So then October of 2007, um, I was the assistant port director for passenger operations in Seattle, and I got selected for a new assignment in uh, in headquarters. So I um, was moving from Seattle back to, to Washington, D.C., and uh, my father uh, in, in my hometown lived in Austin, Minnesota, which was about halfway in between. So in uh, October 2007, I had uh, stopped by uh, my home in um, Austin, and, and I was uh, going to spend some, some time there. And um, uh, when I did stop by, uh, 
my my house. Um, you know, at that time, um, the last time I saw my father, I, I certainly uh, had saw a, a change in in his behavior for I would say the worst, which we'll get into later. So I, I moved back into or I moved to DC um, in that October, and then it was uh, shortly after that in February of uh, 2008. Um, we're not sure exactly uh, what day he died, but uh, around February 9th of 2008, uh, I received a phone call. Uh, we believe he, he died around February 9th of 2008, and I received a phone call from my mother, uh, his ex-wife, um, on about February uh, 12th of 2008, and I learned that uh, my father had uh, committed suicide, uh, basically, um, he was intoxicated uh, on alcohol and uh, drank a, a bottle full of uh, depressant, antidepressant was. So it sounds like he was being treated for a while, uh, years, months? I would say years. I mean, he was pretty private, but he uh, he suffered uh, depression for a while. Okay. Pretty sensitive topic. Um, okay, if I ask a few other details? Of course. Thank you so much. So you said that you noticed a change in him at that last time you had visited him. Uh, can you describe those changes? Yeah, he was uh, drinking quite a bit, it was, which wasn't totally unusual, but uh, he was drinking more than, than normal. Um, he was unkept uh, a little bit. Um, pulse was uh, in a little bit of uh, a mess, and uh, you know that was that was unlike him. And uh, he he was just. Uh, but generally disheveled at that time. Okay. And do you think that those are the kinds of signs and symptoms that people who were not related to him could notice or would notice? Yeah, I think those uh, those symptoms are always harder when you're close to somebody, you know, every single day. But it's certainly something that uh, people that, that knew him over the years would have, would have noticed where it had definitely, definitely changed, yes. So sort of a change in his baseline behavior, his baseline way of interacting. Exactly. Did he did he say anything to you or give you any signs or hints about what he might have been thinking? Not necessarily, but he, you know, he'd, uh, like I said, he was, was drinking quite a bit at the time. So he was a bit, uh, he was a bit incoherent when I was speaking to him. Um, in so much as that I did just, you know, it was uncomfortable talking to him to be perfectly frank, but. You know, there's a couple other issues. He had, uh, I think he had got a, uh, a drunk driving charge at that time that he didn't tell me about. I found out after he passed away. And uh, he was in a former single, uh, city councilman or county council, uh, county commissioner, actually. Um, and he ran again. He didn't, he didn't win there. And then he was um, working part-time at the, the Legion, and uh, he lost that job as well, all all things uh, seem to be uh, stacking up in, in their own direction. And do you suspect that some of those difficulties, obviously the, the driving issue, but were they related to heavier alcohol use, do you think, or was it about something else? Uh, I, I think it was, it was that, but I, you know, I think it was just a whole, a whole bunch of different issues, right? Uh, the alcohol abuse uh, probably had a little bit to do with, uh, with him losing the, the election. And then the financial issues on top of it, then the driving issues on top of that. I think everything kind of uh, started collapsing down together. You know, you had the financial, you had the alcohol, some of those relationships, uh, uh, personal relationships weren't great. 
great standing either. Got it. We, we know from broader research just around our country that mental health problems, alcohol misuse, relationship problems, financial problems, that these are the common precursors to a suicide attempt. There's some research that says the timeline for when someone becomes suicidal and then ends up killing themselves is around two years. Would you say that in the last two years before his death, you noticed other things? Yeah, probably, you know, he probably, you know, just thinking back, uh, it's been a while, but, um, you know, and I didn't live, you know, 11 minutes, I hadn't lived in Minnesota for quite some time at that point, so I hadn't seen a whole lot of them. But, yeah, I would say, um, yeah, I didn't hear for as much from him, and when I did hear from him, you know, it's just the interactions were different, so I'd say that's fair. Great that you're sort of confirming what we know to be true, and certainly within CBP, we know that the top 10 risk factors for suicide include relationship problems, financial problems, job or other legal difficulties, and and certainly uh, alcohol use or substance use. So I asked you about that sort of two-year mark because, as you know, one of the things we've been talking to people about around the agency is looking for the science, being able to recognize when someone is different than their baseline, even if you don't know them real well even if you don't know a lot about what's going on in their personal life, to be able to recognize that. So just wanted to check in with you on that. So fast forward, that was in roughly February 9th of 2008. How have you dealt with it? How have you coped with it, gotten through the the aftermath? Uh, you know, I think immediately, um, you know, after uh, his death, it was certainly difficult. I would, um, looking back, 13 years later or so it, I, at that time I think it was I just threw myself into to work right um, at the time I was single I wasn't married at the time so I just I, I worked a lot to put a lot of uh, time and effort in you know to to take my mind in a different place and and um, so at that point it was work and a lot of different things going on in that time frame um, for work as we moved from 2008 to 2009 and some of the, the threats that we faced. So distraction is one helpful strategy when we've got pretty big stressors or just a ton of stress in general. It's also very common within the law enforcement community for us to s- deal with stress and stressors by sort of putting our heads down and working harder, right? Trying either not to think about it, trying not to deal with it, figuring, you know what, it just takes time, it'll go away. Is that a fair way to describe how you dealt with it? Yeah, I mean, looking back, I certainly wasn't, uh, you know, thinking along those lines, but, you know, looking back, I I suspect that's what I was doing, I guess. Okay. And have you sort of come through the other end of that time with any unfinished business? Have you come through the end of that process a different person? How would you say you're different today as a result of all of this? Well, I think, you know, like many of us that uh, go through tough times, I think I came through stronger, um, you know, stronger and able to uh, handle stressful situations in, in, in um, maybe a calmer, stronger way. But, you know, I, I give that in large part to uh, since then being married and, you know, having a, a six-year-old daughter and, and those sorts of things and starting to realize or realizing what's uh, more important. In life, you know, concentrating on what you have in front of you. Sure. So it sounds like you are better able to handle stress 
and or maybe handle it in a calmer way. And what you describe is pretty darn common too, which is that when we focus on what we value, what our priorities are, it makes us stronger. In terms of resilience, when we are anchored in our values and we are deliberate about how we spend our time and, and that time is focused on those things we value, like you said, family, your daughter, then we're more resilient. So that fits right in with what we know about the research. Is there anything else you want to share about this story before we shift gears for a moment? The one thing that you, of course, you always, you know, you always look back and, and think, you know, ask yourself if you could have done anything different. And I think that's probably to, to your previous question. Uh, I think right afterwards, of course, you know, you, mm-hmm. you go back and, and you recognize the signs and, you know, I think that comes to the point if, uh, you see something that's out of the ordinary, you need to, uh, you need to bring it to folks' attention at the time. I just, it was the last thing that would have crossed my mind. So, you know, over time you start to realize that, that it's in fact, you're not your fault, but to, you also know, um, know what you stated before, you know, what, uh, indicators to look for, I, I think, um, is you see people that are maybe in similar situations. That's a great point. So some of our listeners are undoubtedly lost survivors. So they've also lost someone to suicide, whether it was a spouse or someone they supervised or even a coworker. And on lots of the calls I've had with different offices in the organization, I've often heard that as a concern that there's the potential for self-blame or guilt. And by the same token, if I try and I get involved and then the person does kill themselves, that's an, another type of guilt. So one type of guilt is sort of not knowing and realizing, you know what, I could have done something to save them. The other type is I tried and they still did it. So what kind of advice or guidance would you give to employ- employees in our organization, supervisors, people who might be lost survivors about not feeling guilty or, or self-blaming you know it's a, it's a good question i mean i think it's really it's really not you know it's easier said than done but it's you know it's you cannot uh blame yourself for these types of situations you know you're not the one that uh that caused uh, the individual to do what they did and you know you really you know i think the other thing you can really do in instances like this is is really be there for um uh, for those in their family that may be suffering you know even as much as as you may be as well so it's yeah it's a hard question of course there's no right answer but appreciate what you said there it sounds like what you are encouraging is if you're reaching out and trying to help others then it somehow becomes more manageable. There's obviously there's the old phrase that well, misery loves company, right? Yeah, so, so that was just, it was just, <laughs> that's exactly what I was stuck at. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, you, you communicated it pretty clearly. So, so misery loves company. And we know that when we're mourning or we're grieving or dealing with a tough time, when, when we have people to our right and left and we're sort of all in this together, it's just more tolerable, right? Yeah, and I mean, and, and don't be afraid to talk uh, talk about those feelings with others as well, because you will have some guilt, right? So yeah, you know, seek out folks that will listen to you as well. Mm-hmm. We've also talked in the some of our discussions, meetings with different offices, briefings, how 
we can't put someone else's life on our shoulders. In other words, if people truly want to kill themselves, they're going to be able to do it. They will conceal the signs or they will uh, outright lie to us and say, nope, I'm doing well, I'm doing fine. And so it might even be unrealistic. We might even set ourselves up for a more difficult time if we do take that flag up the field and uh, up the hill and say, this is, I'm going to save a life. Probably more realistic for us to empower each other to just reduce risk. If we can just see something, say something to your point a few minutes ago, then at least we can reduce risk. And we have to figure out where's that boundary between personal responsibility for their own lives and professional responsibility on our side for things like safety, risk. Yeah, no, very true. Well, anything as, as we sort of wrap up, is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you think is important when it comes to, if you see something, say something, when it comes to supervisors, leaders, or just everyday employees caring for each other around this issue? You know, I mean, I think at the end of the day, you know, we say it often, but uh, especially number one in our profession, we need to take care of each other, right? Nobody knows um, uh, the stresses uh, that we face or the stresses that you see, the stresses that uh, you're dealing with every every single day um, more than we do, um, more than, than we can recognize in each other. So we, we need to take care of each other. We need to be that sounding board for co-workers, those that uh, we are supervising, uh, we need to be able to listen. And, and if we see something that's out of the ordinary, we need to, uh, we need to be able to uh, address those situations in the right way. And I, I know those conversations are not easy. When you see those indications, uh, you know, they're hard to want to accept, to be, to be perfectly honest with you. So, you know, I, I, I really do think it's, it's about taking care of each other. I mean, you, we spend more time with our coworkers than, than many of us spend with our families, right? So we see each other an awful lot. Over time, we're going to know it's a normal behavior, it's not normal behavior. And that this is about, uh, about their safety, your safety, and everybody's safety. It's not about, uh, you know, it's about the human being. It's not necessarily about the job or anything else. It's just taking care of each other, making sure we get to, go home and see time with our family, enjoy time with our families every single day. So what I hear you saying is that it's, it's not really just about a personal boundary with them thinking of killing themselves and your professional boundary to help, but there is a personal role there. We are somewhat like a family to each other. If not for the hardships we endure together, certainly the amount of time we spend together. So I appreciate you uh, reframing and refocusing on that, that we have each other and, and oftentimes we may notice something before the family. Yeah. Yep. Big, uh, big dysfunctional family, but we are a family. Well, I was, I was going to say it's been a very difficult last two to three weeks, but then as I think about that, it's really been a grueling year, uh, a grueling two years, three years. And we can extend the timeline however long, uh, we want. It's, it's been pretty tough for our people working tireless hours, uh, doing their best to meet our mission. What words of appreciation do you have for our, everything that our folks are doing? Look, I mean, there, I, there's no single uh, organization in government that can do what uh, Customs and Border Protection does every single day uh, to keep our, our nation safe. It's incredible 
uh, to watch the resiliency of this agency. It's re- it's incredible to see the capabilities and ingenuity of this agency. Um, you know, I'm incredibly proud and humbled to be part of it every single day, and you should too. Appreciate your leadership, sir. Appreciate your willingness to dial into this topic and and share your personal thoughts with everyone. Just want to thank everyone for listening and let you know that we will have monthly podcasts going forward. Not sure if we can get Acting Commissioner Miller on again. He's a busy man, but uh, he's certainly welcome. So, sir, if there's any other time you want to come on and and have this be your your forum, you're welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And uh, everybody, please take care. This is part of a podcast series, Suicide Prevention and Awareness Month, which is September. If you do see someone struggling, asking about it may feel awkward, but you can be part of the solution. By tolerating that awkwardness, you can help reduce suicide risk at home or in the workplace. If you see someone struggling and you want to say something, simply ask, are you okay? Can I help? And then ask them if they are thinking of ending their life. It really does make a difference. Look out for our next podcast and throughout the Shine a Light campaign in FY22. Thank you again to our guest. I really appreciate you. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in.